0: All right, good morning. Glad to see you all here this morning. Uh, like usual, we'll start, we'll start this morning with the green sheet. If you didn't uh, grab one on the way in, they're available uh, at the entrance uh, to the gym here. All right. Just a note on the Bible reading. So over the course of the summer, um, the plan is to read through all of the Pauline epistles, um, and so we're we're two weeks into that now, which means that we're just about done with the book of Romans. And this week we flip over from Romans into First Corinthians, uh, which will take then another sixteen days. Um, we'll keep on we'll keep on going through, right? So, um, so First uh, Corinthians reads significantly different. Than Romans, Um, Romans is a very—it's very clearly articulated, very clearly argued. Um, I'm not saying Paul's less clear in First Corinthians, uh, but Romans kind of has um, one. I guess you might say that the focus is right—the the the unity of Jew and Gentile in the Roman uh, Church—that Jew and Gentile are united under sin. Uh, but that Jew and Gentile are also united in salvation that comes by the righteousness that is not through works but the righteousness uh, that is through faith, um, and so Paul, with um, very clearly establishing the way righteousness comes, and also um, that that this is not no different for the Jew than it is for the Greek. Um, and then showing how the Jew and Gentile are united in Christ. Um, a lot of that uh, we saw this past week with the image of the, uh, of the shoot, the vine, uh, or the olive tree where the, the, the native branches were cut off because of their unbelief, and wild olive shoots were grafted in. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a little bit different. Um, it seems that Paul has gotten some sort of correspondence or communication listing all the problems with the church in Corinth. And he's just, in some in, in some ways, he is just kind of checking off the list. So here's the first thing I hear, and this is why that's a problem and you need to fix it. Here's the next thing that's wrong, and that's also a problem and you need to fix it. Um, but the Corinthians also have a problem uh, with disunity, although it's different than it is in some of the other churches, it seems. A lot of the churches, the disunity is simply... How are Jews and Gentiles going to get along? Uh, Corinth, it seems like there's even more factions, and it and it seems as though it's not clearly as clearly um, delineated as Jew Gentile, but everyone kind of has their own personality they like to follow, and and they're and they've divided into camps. So um, so it would be like if you here at Bethany uh, were divided into Camp Clammer and Camp Schumacher and Camp Bartons, um, and you didn't get along. Um, and and so and so that's that's one of the big deals is the unity that comes up again and again. Um, but there's also all other sort all sorts of other problems in Corinth. Um, and crazy enough, as messed up as Corinth is, it's not the most angry letter that Paul writes. Second Corinthians, first Corinthians, he's mad. Second Corinthians, they're still got problems, and Paul actually says, "I've written to you twice. Don't make me write again." Like he all but said, like like that's. He pretty he actually does say that, like he says, this is now the second time I am writing to you. Please get your act together before I come in person. Um, but but um, but even in those, he's mad, but he's not so mad that uh, he doesn't. Each of those epistles still starts off with a, uh, you know, I Paul, I Paul, an apostle to the church in Corinth, grace and peace. I give thanks to God for you and remember you in my prayers. He has a Thanksgiving section. Um, the angriest letter that Paul writes is definitely to the Galatians. And there, Paul doesn't even stop to give thanks for the Galatians. He's like, uh, Paul, to the church in Galatia, grace and peace to you. I am flabbergasted. I am floored that you have so quickly abandoned the gospel I preach to you. Like, what in the world are you doing? Like, how have you been bewitched, you foolish Galatians? It's, like, again, he actually says that. Um, but anyway, so 1 Corinthians um, in a lot of ways is just he's going one by one through a list that he's received from some sort of communication. All right. So moving on in the green sheet uh, this week. So, so for our Bible verses this, this summer, I'm pulling them out of, uh, out of the uh, sections of the epistles that were, that were reading through the week. Um, and so our Bible verse for this week comes from first Corinthians one. Let's read it all together here. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I know it's long, but let's go ahead and say that section from the table of duties too. It's especially since it's ever pertinent. So uh, the table of duties concerning civil government, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Let us pray. The Lord be with you. Almighty and most merciful God, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to seek and to save the lost. Graciously open our ears and our hearts to hear his call and to follow him by faith, that we may feast with him forever in his kingdom. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Alright, a uh, few announcements real quick again. As we mentioned in the Divine Service, uh, a big thank you to everyone who helped with Vacation Bible School this week. Um, everything went well, even though our, our volunteers did start dropping off like flies due to sickness at the end of the week, uh, myself included. So, um, But thank you for everyone who volunteered and helped with that. Also, uh, still looking for communion care help. Um, so please contact Pam Split um, if you would be available to help with communion care, uh, which means uh, helping to clean the communion vessels after the divine service. Um, it's a very, a very doable thing on Sunday morning when you're here anyway. Um, so, so, please, so please, if you're able, uh, contact Pam Split uh, to help out with that. Also, as far as I know, we're still looking for a seventh and eighth grade teacher for our day school next year, and um, a vacancy that was, uh, that was created when, uh, when our teacher, Becca Hahn, took a call to cross in Yorkville a, a week or so ago. Um, so please, if you know of anyone who would, be, um, who would be a good fit to teach at Bethany at the seventh and eighth grade level, please uh, contact the school office and submit names there. Uh, Also, Theology on Tap is this Wednesday uh, in the youth room. I think that starts at 7. And I I think the goal for this time is to finish up uh, the Ten Commandments from the large catechism. That's either the goal for this month or next month. I don't really remember it. But anyway, so Theology on Tap, large catechism, Ten Commandments. It'll be good stuff. And then finally, a week from yesterday, so so this upcoming Saturday... Uh, on June 17th at 11 um, is the memorial service for Rich Sudis, who died uh, a few months ago. Um, so his memorial service is here at 11 in the church um, this, coming, this coming Saturday. All right, I think that's all for our announcements. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive in and continue our study, uh, our study of the liturgy. So last week... Last week, we we actually started going through the parts of the liturgy, uh, properly speaking, and so we started with the um, we started uh, with the, with the preparatory service or confession and absolution, which which was noted at some point, if not last week uh, than before, um, that historically corporate confession and absolution uh, was not part of the church's liturgy, um, because where was Where was confession and absolution taking place? In the confessional, confessional, right? So it was taking taking place privately uh, with the priest. And and so so confession and absolution as part of the divine service was not a thing until the Reformation. Um, Now, what happened during the Reformation? So historically, as part of the divine service, the priest... Had a confession that he made, but no one heard it. So the priest would go to the altar and he would confess very quietly. And he would, and it was an older form of the confession, which you can actually still find in Lutheran service book in the order of complement. The priest would say, uh, "I confess before God Almighty, the whole company of heaven, and to you, my brothers, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore I pray God Almighty to have mercy on me, forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life." And then, you know, because there were usually multiple priests, then they would speak a they would speak a quiet absolution to him. So there was a confession absolution going on at the beginning of divine service, or at least a confession. Uh, confidier is what they would call it. Um, but it was it was just the priest, and the people didn't even hear it. It was said in a soft voice, sato voce. Um, so the Reformation is really when the corporate confession absolution kind of becomes a thing. And even the Reformers are arguing about whether or not it's a good idea to have corporate confession and absolution. Does anyone know why they might be arguing? Some would argue about that this is not a good idea uh, to have corporate confession absolution. Dominic, sorry. Right, so yeah, so so right, it's hard to really administer the keys, right, um, because you don't really know what's what people are thinking when they confess this way, right? Uh, uh, so, now they didn't have something of a solution for that, because their public absolution was not quite like ours. They actually they actually had an outward um, expression of the binding key, and so it was in some ways kind of conditional, so their absolution would be like, uh, for those of you whose confession is sincere and heartfelt, then I forgive your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, but for those of you who are unrepentant and have spoken this confession as a mockery, uh, then I bind unto you your sins. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> and so that, that's a lot of this, but right, but because they were interested, right, they didn't want to, uh, because if you remember from the Catechism, um, what sorts of people do we forgive and what sorts of people do we bind? Who is to be forgiven? Those who are, bound. Those who are repentant. And who is to be bound? The, the unrepentant as long as, as... Yeah, as long as they do not repent, right? Um, so so because, we be, you know, because, according to the Catechism, we believe that, that only those who are repentant are to be absolved, and the, uh, and the fact that there are probably some people out there making this corporate confession who are unrepentant. Uh, some of the reform, reforming theologians, the Lutheran theologians, felt the need to have a public binding key. Uh, which, did, which, did fall, which did fall out of use pretty quickly. Uh, but nonetheless, it was there. Uh, and there's another reason. So that's one reason, right? The, uh, it makes it hard for pastors who have been given the uh, authority to publicly exercise the keys... It makes that job hard. And what's the, um, what, is, what do you think maybe is the other concern about putting corporate confession and absolution as part of the divine service? Actually, I don't think so. Because the Catholics don't, at least at that time, they, they didn't have corporate confession and absolution in their divine service. I think that the, the thing was, um, so if when you read the Lutheran confessions, they have all sorts of critiques about the penitential system in the Roman Catholic Church, including that only those sins which you outwardly confess to the priest are forgiven, um, that you must do satisfactions in order for your sins to be fully forgiven. Uh, but even with all those all those corrections, the Lutherans insisted. That private confession and absolution is good and should be retained and made use of. And some of them are afraid of introducing corporate confession and absolution because they're afraid that by doing that, it'll kill it'll kill private confession. And uh, and I think their concerns have proven to be to be uh, to be valid. Right, uh, private confession is all but dead among us. Uh, so, um, and so that's why they're, they're hesitant to do it, but so they're arguing about it, but Luther says, Luther says it's fine to have corporate confessions part of the divine service, but like, just make sure everyone's still going to private confession. Or so <laughs> I'm not, a, I mean, I'm not opposed to confessionals. They do, they do tend toward, um, they do tend toward part, potential abuse. That's, that's part of it. Um. But there's Lutheran churches that have confessionals. They actually have confessionals. Yeah. Really? So really like, well, yeah. Yeah. Not with mortal sins, definitely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. That's a. Yeah. That's a big deal. They do, yeah, yeah, and, and to be sure. So, and for them, the distinction between mortal sin and venial sin is very important, because uh, mortal sins, if if they go unconfessed, will damn you to hell. Venial sins, if they go unconfessed, do not damn you to hell, but you but they will add to your time in purgatory. Whatever venial sins you don't confess. Now, when you confess mortal sins. For them, the guilt is transferred from mortal guilt to venial guilt. So once you confess your mortal sin and the priest absolves you, that sin is no longer has mortal guilt, so it no longer damns to hell. But that sin does still have venial guilt, and if you don't do the satisfaction for it on earth, then you will have to do the satisfaction for it in purgatory. Uh. But anyway, all that to say, right, so the Roman Catholic... Uh, penitential system was all sorts of unbiblical and all sorts of messed up. Um, but for all that, uh, the Lutherans recognized the amazing gift of private confession and absolution and wanted to keep using it. And because of that, some of them were very hesitant about adding corporate confession and absolution in the divine service. Um, now, the other thing I was going to add, so so Lutherans, but Lutherans do bring it into the divine service, um, but its location in the divine service. Has, has shifted through the, through the years. So um, for, for many years, the most normal place to find corporate confession and absolution in the, divine, in the Lutheran divine service was not right up front where we have it, but it was after the sermon, but before communion. So after the sermon, the confession would be introduced with having, having heard the word of God let us confess our sins unto God our Father, imploring his grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so the idea that then the sermon, right, the, the, the reading of scripture and the sermon um, would then move us, right, to make confession, trusting that God is then merciful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Um, the switch to the front end of the service I think happens late 19th century. It's certainly around by the time the 19th century is around. Uh, but the, the Missouri Synod's first hymnal, their first German hymnal, still has it after the sermon before before communion. But our first English hymnal, I think, uh, which which uses the service that was developed in 1888, has it right at the front end. Now there was another practice for a while where if you were going to commune, They they didn't do corporate confession absolution as a matter of fact in every service. But if you were planning on communing, you would come to what was called the confessional service, which would take place half an hour before the divine service. And there was a specific confessional service that the pastor would conduct specifically for those who intended to commune that day. Um, And so they they would confess their sins, he would absolve them, and then those were those were the, the, the folks who would who would go to communion at the divine service that day. Um, but by the time, especially then, by the time TLH comes out, probably ELHB. So the hymnal before TLH uh, was ELHB, Evangelical Lutheran Hymnal. It was published in 1912 and served the Synod for about 30 years when TL, TLH came out in the early 40s. Um, and I, I think it had confession at the beginning of the service already. Um, so now... So we still have confession and absolution at the beginning of the service, and, and like I said, properly speaking, you can make the argument that it's that it is that it's the uh, a preparatory service that it's um, that it kind of comes in some sense before before the, the divine service properly starts. That this is preparation uh, to 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 enter into the divine service. All right. Um, so last week what we covered was uh, we covered the invocation, the confessional address. And those little versicles, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Um, And and a couple of the main points uh, we made about that was that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. I was one of this was from the Psalms of Ascent. So it's a Psalm you would sing as a Jew as you ascended the Temple Mount. So this is a Psalm you would sing as you approach the house of God, right? So that's why we have it at the beginning of our service, and of course it's very applicable to confession absolution, right? Our help is in the name of the Lord, right? Our help from what? Well, our help for deliverance from sin, death, and the devil is in the name of the Lord. Um, and that's a comforting thing because this is the Lord who made heaven and earth. And if he's powerful enough to make heaven and earth, well then, by golly, um, he's powerful to forgive my sins. Uh, yes, Harvey? Yeah, please. Yeah. 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 We're going to address that a little bit. We're going to address that idea too. Um, here, once we get, once we get done with the confessional service. Um, but yeah, that's good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually. Yeah. That's pretty recent. I don't know. I don't know how many churches was, were still doing that in the 50s. Uh, but yeah, that's that's good. Just keep that in your in your back pocket. Um, and then the next versicle there, I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What, we, what I wanted us to remember last week was what comes before that in the psalm, uh, because David's praying this. And, and, I, and I told you my theory about this psalm. So Psalm 51 in the inscription tells you that this is the psalm of David, um, after Nathan the prophet came in and rebuked him for going into Bathsheba. Um, this versicle is from Psalm 32. Uh, but I really think David is... I really think he's... I think that Psalm 32 is an older David pondering that event in his life and reflecting on it as an, as an older man. Um, but anyway, so... But, but what, hap- what comes before that in the psalm is David says, when I kept silence... My bones wasted away through all the day, right? And what was he keeping silence about? Well, he was keeping silence about his sin, right? He had sinned, and he was trying to cover it up. Don't speak about it. No one knows. Keep it under wraps. Um, And outwardly, that might have been helping his life go along okay? Uh, But what was happening inwardly? Well, he was in turmoil, right, because um, even though no one even though he had seemingly successfully covered it up, um, you can make everyone else think you're innocent, but he was unable to fool himself but that's actually a good thing that he wasn't able to fool himself, uh, right because his bones were wasting away, uh, but then because of his guilt, then what happened? Then I said, "I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, um, it turns out that that was a good thing because uh, the lord didn't come to judge, but rather the Lord forgave the iniquity of his sin, right? So in some sense, it'd almost be nice if we had both of those versicles, right? When I kept silence, my bones wasted away. Then I said, I will confess my transgressions and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It might be, I'm not for changing the liturgy, but but sometimes I have ideas that I think might be kind of nice. But anyway, um, because then the idea would be like for us, right, as we hear that, don't be like, don't do what David was doing. Don't keep your sin in. Don't try to cover it up yourself, um, because that is not the life of peace, that's not the Christian life, and you'll waste away with guilt. Um, Instead, confess your transgressions, because God will be merciful and forgive them. Uh, And then you'll have real peace, right? So after we have those versicles, then there's some silence for reflection on God's Word and self-examination. I'm always torn about that moment of silence. Um, I I find myself struggling knowing what to do. uh, Because if we wanted to give adequate time for self-examination and reflection, we'd be standing up there for several minutes in silence. Uh, And I had a professor in college. He's like, we're just going to do one minute. He's like, just one minute of silence. And it turns out one minute is a really, really long-seeming time when you're standing there silently. Um, and, of course, it would take multiple minutes if we were going to, like, honestly self-examine ourselves. Uh, but I will tell you what I do, at least when I'm a pastor, the way I measure that sign of silence is I, in my head, as I, I say the Ten Commandments, uh, because that is our primary tool for self-examination, right, the, the Ten Commandments. So I say those and at least ponder a few specific sins in my, for my own life uh, according to the Ten Commandments. Um, but I, when I, when I was doing this right after I got ordained, I was like, what do I do? I'm like, I'm sitting there. It's like, how long should I let this silence go on? How much is too, not too much? But how much is not enough? Um, and so, um, so I guess, so I guess, uh, since we have that rubric and we do observe it, um, I guess the encouragement would be, I, I think that's, that's probably for the time we take, that doing the 10 commandments is probably the most helpful thing for me. If anyone else has better ideas, I'm, I'm all ears. But um, but when I was a kid and we had that time of silence, I wasn't doing, I was definitely not self-reflecting. I was sitting there thinking, can we get on with this? You know? Um, so anyway, ooh, someone opened the doors. That feels, that feels good. All right, so we have that time of silence. We don't have kneelers here, so we just stand for it all. Um, but if we had kneelers, we would kneel, right? We want to talk about ceremonies. We would kneel for this part of the service, right? Because kneeling is a, is a posture of humility um, and even one of, like, begging for mercy, right? That we come to God as those begging. That's Luther's last words, right? We are beggars. This is true, right? Uh, we come needing from God what he has to give us. All right. All right. Yeah. I know, I know, I, I usually don't say anything, but every once in a while I have someone in the, I remember in college, I had peers in their 20s that would complain about how kneeling hurts. And I had been to a church that had like, old women in their 80s, um, who one of, one of them sat in the front row because for whatever reason, she didn't get her normal spot or something. And the rest of the pews had kneelers, but there were no kneelers for the front pew and it was a stone floor. And this lady in her 80s like, Without complaint, gets down on her knees on the stone floor, um, and it's like in her case, like if she had, like chosen not to kneel, no one was gonna like tell her that she like <laughs> that she should kneel, right? But she's like doing this willingly, and then and then I've got this friend in his twenties who's like ca- talking about how much it hurts to kneel, and I'm like, oh man, like I was I was like I was like biting my tongue. I'm like, oh come on, this is. I was like, you sound pathetic. <laughs> that is true. They are. That's why you don't mess with them. <laughs> All right. So then we then we go on. Uh. So oh. So then we start the confession. Uh, oh, Almighty God, merciful Father, and I think that already is significant, because uh, what two attributes do we ascribe to God? Just with those words. He's almighty and he's merciful, right? So almighty, right? Um, he has the power to do anything, um, which means that he rightfully could judge us, right? We are, throwing our, we are throwing ourselves sinners into the hands of a perfect and almighty God, um, and that's dangerous, right? Um, but then we, so we, we, we recognize that he's almighty, but then we immediately remind him something else about himself, and it's that he's merciful, um, I can't remember what it is. I think it might be in the Easter. No, it's, it's probably coming up. There's a collect, we pray, that comes up in the church here. I can't remember when. Um, but it starts like this. Oh, oh, Heavenly Father, whose glory it is always to have mercy. That God glories in being merciful. Um, so we, so we, uh, we start by reminding God about two of his attributes. First, that he's almighty, but also that he's merciful um, and that he is to us what? He's a father, right? So we come, we don't come to him as strangers. We come to him as children in need of his forgiveness. Um, and because we're his baptized children, we come knowing that he loves to have mercy on his baptized children. Um, and so that's, that's how we approach him, um, as, as his sinful children in need of mercy. So the first thing we do is describe a couple things about God, and then we immediately start describing ourselves. Um, and it's not Almighty and merciful, but rather poor and miserable. So Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, and that's and that's something significant. And that gets to what Pastor Clemmer, if you went to 8:30's church, uh, was addressing at the beginning of his sermon. Um, we don't start. We don't start our confession by giving, by, by giving a list of things that we've done wrong or things that we failed to do right. We don't say, oh, almighty God, merciful Father, I confess that I haven't loved my neighbor as myself and that I've, and that I've failed to do this and that and that I've done this, that, and the other sinful thing. Uh, rather, we describe ourselves as what? A poor, miserable sinner um, and so, what sort of what sort of sin is that describing? All, all, original sin, right? The original sin, our inborn sinful nature, right? So we're not simply confessing um, that we're we're not confessing that we're we're overall, dear God, you know, you know, I'm pretty good, but I had a couple things that didn't quite go right for me this week, and, and so I need a couple. Um, I need a couple. Uh, Forgive the slips for those things I, I happen to mess up. Uh, rather, we are confessing that we are sinful to the core because of original sin. The word that describes us is not good people who happen to sin, but rather that we are by nature sinful. We have, we are sinners. All right. So I, a poor, miserable sinner, and this is what you have to watch out for in popular televangelistic. Um, preachers. Um, there's a, you all maybe all heard of Joyce Meyer. She was actually born in Missouri Synod, left the Missouri Synod, now she's a TV preacher. She's probably getting kind of old now. She's been around as long as I can remember. But anyway, one time she was talking about, she, one time she went on this long tirade and, and the capstone was, I am not poor, I am not miserable, and I am not a sinner. And that's how you could tell she was brought up in the Missouri Synod. Um, because the people she's preaching to probably don't know that confession. Um, but I'm like, she's totally, she's totally blasted against what she was forced to say growing up. And she's upset about it now. Um, but right. So, so she doesn't, she doesn't. And right. And, and the other key that you can tell what she's doing is, 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 uh, something went wrong somewhere is that she's, she envisions herself as a preacher, but her program is called enjoying everyday life. Um, which means what she's mostly out to give you is not the word of God, but tips for how to how to enjoy life more, even though Jesus says Christians will suffer. Um, so yeah, so um, but but that's not unique to her. Um that's pretty that's a pretty common trend that that we're generally good and we just make some mistakes sometimes, and those, those need to be fixed. Mike, do you have something you want to add? I had a, a co-worker quite a few years ago that was looking for a church. I suggested that next time I saw them, they announced how much of an issue they had with that statement. Yeah. Like they were, they were, I almost left, I almost walked out because I, they, they didn't like that statement, I am poor, miserable sinner, and that was exactly the, the reflection they had was how Gary was all say that I'm this. So. It is interesting. So I was going to, so we'll look at, we'll think about this Bible passage a little bit more um, when we get to the Kyrie because the man says, uh, have mercy. Um, But if you remember the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, one of them says, uh, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this other man. I do all this good stuff. I'm a generally good person. That's what the Pharisee says. God, I'm quite generally a pretty good person and do what I'm supposed to do. And then the the tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beats his breast and say, God, have mercy on me. The sinner. The sinner. And what does Jesus say about these two? I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his home having been declared righteous and not the Pharisee. Um, It's like, or it's like Jesus says to the Pharisees again, and uh, we think they're generally pretty good people. In today's reading from Matthew 9, um, he says what? uh, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. No, no, he says that. Is that what he says? Is that Are they in the same one? Yeah, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why? Because those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. If we are not poor, miserable sinners, then we don't need Jesus. We don't need Jesus if we're not poor, miserable sinners. Yeah? I had a choir member who I the choir like, who but it was oh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Maybe when the say Yeah. Although, to be sure, right, miserable, like, I think it's good that we have the word miserable in there for a couple reasons. First of all, because most of us aren't actually miserable, like, as, as an emotional state. The word miserable is an emotional word. Most of us don't actually feel outwardly that miserable when we sin. A lot of times we actually kind of like it. Uh, So the liturgy teaches right? And so this teaches us how we should feel about our sin even though we by nature don't feel this way about our sin. right? Saying poor miserable sinner um, right? uh, That we are in misery even if we don't emotionally recognize it. That that is the state we are in Um, and it's good I think that we have that reminder that we are that our sin actually makes us miserable, right, and pitiable. So yeah, good, good stuff. So I, a poor, miserable sinner, the other thing I want to say, I had a professor, since we're talking about this, in college, he would frequently say,
1: big sin
0: equals big Jesus. Little sin equals little Jesus. So if you have, so if you understand that your sin is big, well then that means that you understand Jesus, right, to have a more major Impact and influence on your life, but if you don't understand your sin, to, if you understand your sin to be little, um, then then you're not going to have the same appreciation for Jesus, which is which is right when Jesus says, "Which one loved the master more, the one who was forgiven a lot of debt, or the one who was forgiven a little bit of debt?" And everyone's like, "Well, of course, the one who owed more." And then Jesus says to the to the uh, ex prostitute who's sitting there in front of her in front of him, he's like, "Well." This is why she loves so much, because she has been forgiven much. All right, so I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you. So the word confess um, actually just means to say the same thing. Uh, It's from the Greek word homologet. So it's same thing, same, same, So say the same thing. So you might say that uh, something of a synonym for confess is actually um, to outwardly to agree. Uh, and who are we agreeing with when we confess them? Who are What? God. With God, right? And so when we confess our sinfulness, we're saying the same thing about ourselves and our sin that God says about us and our sin. Which is why we also use that word when we confess the Creed, right? We're not saying we've done something wrong with the Creed. But we're saying the same thing that God has said about who he he is um, and about himself, right? So this time, though, we're agreeing with God about our sins, right? I confess to you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you. So now we get into the specific things we've done, right? I confess my sins. So I, a sinner, confess my sins, all right? Because I'm a sinner, I have sins to confess, right? Uh, It gets the order right. We don't... So for Adam and Eve, they are sinners because they sinned. Before they sinned, they were not sinners. For the rest of us, it's the other way around. We sin because we are sinners. The fact that we're sinners comes before we sin. So I am a sinner. I confess to you my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you. And we also recognize that we have... That we deserve punishment for it, both... Temporal and eternal punishment. So what is uh, what's the difference between temporal and eternal punishment? What is temporal punishment? Something that happens here in this time. Yeah, here in time. And what's the most obvious temporal punishment for our sins? Natural consequences. Natural consequences, okay. Okay. Okay, those are all good. Uh, right, so so obviously, right, if we if we sin and it causes if we can see directly the, the, the negative results of our sin, right? We could say that those are that those are temporal punishments for sin, a guilty conscience. There's one more, one big one. That's a temporal consequence for sin. Death or bodily death. Bodily death is is a temporal punishment for sin. All right. Uh, so so if that is if that's the temporal punishment, what's what is eternal punishment for sin? Separation, Separation from God, which... What's, what's the one-word answer for this? No. Hell. Yeah, hell, damnation, right? That is the eternal punishment for sin, right? So we deserve all of this. We deserve temporal punishments, and we certainly deserve temporal punishments more than we get, right? We deserve much more temporal punishment than we than we see. And, of course, we deserve eternal punishment, um, But, but I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. All right. So I am sorry that I have sinned against God. Right. Um, And what for the Christian, what motivates our sorrow for sin? What should I, I mean, maybe there's, there's probably multiple motivations for sorrow over sin, but, but why should we be sorry for our sin? In the Roman Catholic Church, this would be the difference between contrition and attrition. So, attrition—so contrition is what you should strive for, but attrition will do if you can't get to contrition. So, for them, attrition is sorrow over sin because you're afraid of God's punishment. All right. So that's so that's so that's that's one thing that might motivate us to be sorry for our sins. We see this in kids, right? They they, 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 uh, they, don't correct their behavior until you threaten to punish them. And they're afraid of punishment, so then they, they stop doing what you want them to stop doing. Um, but at the end of the day, that's not really what we want. That's not the ultimate reason we want our... We don't want that to be the only motivation for our kids to listen to us, right? We want them to listen to us because what? Because they love us, right? Because... Um, and so that's contrition, then, in the Roman Catholic system. We don't draw all these distinctions. But they are sorry for their... But contrition is sorrow over sin out of love for God. I love God, and I have broken his commandments, and therefore I feel sorrow over that because I have offended the one whom, whom I love and the one who loves me, right? Um, and, and so there, So we are sorry for our sins, um, I mean, because we fear his punishments, right? I mean, there is a sense in which we do want to escape God's punishments. But also because, because, um, because we've offended the God who has done all these great things for us um, and have yet um, ignored his word and sinned. Um, so we are sorry for them, I think, for both, for both reasons. Um, and we repent of them, right? That means we want to turn away from them. We heartily desire to do better and so we desire to turn away from our sins and to turn toward Christ uh, and him alone. And then, and then here, here we get to the key part. And I pray you of your boundless mercy. So mercy here comes up again, right? Again, so we started by reminding God that he's merciful. We're going to do it again. Uh, your boundless mercy and also for what? The sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved son, Jesus Christ. All right, so that's the kicker. That's the big deal. That is the reason that we have the right, that we can make this confession in confidence because Christ has suffered and died for our sins. We make this confession and plea for mercy on the basis of that. If Christ has not died, uh, then we have no basis, we have no confidence uh, to make this confession. But because Christ has died... Because the atonement is a fact, um, then the death death of Christ uh, gives us the confidence to make this confession. So, uh, the innocent bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we ask you then to be gracious and merciful to me, uh, and just for good measure, a poor sinful being. Um, Alright, so then we get to the absolution, we'll get through this, and then we'll call it a day, and next week we'll jump into the service of the Word so then the pastor turns back around toward the people. Um, and we don't have the binding key as strongly as they had it in the Reformation. Um, but we do have something, and this is why we're using setting three for this study and not any of the other settings. Um, setting three does have something of a condition on the absolution. It's not quite as obvious as if you truly meant this, then I forgive you. But if you were, but if you did all this. Um, and mockery toward God. We don't have that. Um, but, but how does the absolution start? I say, upon, upon this your confession. Those words, I think, those are really important. Because what, I, what those words actually mean are is, in, a, in essence, what the more blatant, what the more explicit loosing and binding he was doing. What I'm saying, when I say, upon this your confession, is... Alright, so if your confession... If this confession you made was sincere, then the rest of this applies to you. But if upon this your confession also means that if your confession was a mockery, well, then this absolution then is also... uh, Is not for you. So we we do have that in the words, upon this your confession. Alright, so upon this your confession... I, by virtue of my office, right? So the pastor, the pastor then is, he's doing what Paul does at the beginning of his letters, right? The pastor's credentialing himself so that you know uh, that he is doing this according to the good order of the church and that and that Christ through the church has given him authority to do what he's about to do. It's like when Paul says, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. You know, Paul's saying, um, Uh, you need to listen to what I'm going to say because I say this not on my own authority but on the authority of another. That's what the pastor's doing here. I, by virtue of my office, as a called and ordained servant of the word, right, so I'm, some of you were probably there. That's the cool thing about being, ministering in the church where you're ordained is that when you say something like called and ordained, um, if I'm still here when I'm like 80, maybe no one will remember my ordination, but at least for the time being, when I say call and ordained, a fair chunk of the congregation remembers the fact that I was actually duly ordained in the church because a lot of them were there. Um, servant of the word, and if you had the book in front of you, you would see the word is capitalized, right? So, servant of Christ and a preacher of his word. I announce the grace of God unto all of you. And here's the big deal, right? So, in the stead... So I'm standing in the place of Christ, in the stead of Christ. And here's the other one. By the command of my Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not... So, so, so some people get all hung up by the fact when they come to our church, when they come to, a, to an LCMS church, that they're describing themselves as poor and miserable. Other people get hung up by the fact that there's a man standing up there who purports to forgive sins in the name of Christ. Um, Uh, But I don't do this in the name of Christ because I decided that it it might be fun for me to do. That I thought it'd be I thought, you know what, Jesus really... It's not that one day I thought, you know, Jesus really should have given us authority to forgive sins in his place. Uh, No, of course we're not doing that. I'm doing this by the command of Christ. Christ told pastors to do this. He told his disciples to do this in the upper room. Um... And thereby gave this instruction to all his pastors who follow in the line of the apostles. Uh, Christ commanded it, which means, I have no choice. For all of you who have sincerely confessed your sins in repentance, I have no choice but to forgive you your sins in the place of Christ. If I don't do that, then I have abandoned my office and I am unfit for the ministry. For those of you who sincerely confess your sins, I am obligated by Christ to stand in his place and forgive you your sins. So I do it, right? In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Harkening back to the beginning of the the confessional service where we started with the invocation, ends with the triune name of God, right? Right? and, and, really, and really, that brings the entire Trinity, right, into the work of forgiveness, right? That it's Christ who dies for our forgiveness, um, but it's God who sends him and it's the Holy Spirit who calls us to faith, who brings us to repentance, um, and who, and who um, is constantly working um, to help us live in that repentance. Any, any quick questions before we call it a wrap for today? We're out of time. All right, so next week we'll jump into the service of the word, and and we'll go from there. God bless your week, and we'll see you in church.